I'm a huge believer in restorative justice, which is essentially the criminal iteration of ADR, of mediation. The idea that when someone does something wrong, when they've broken the rules of society and harm somebody, the most important thing to do is to make the victim whole, is to heal what the brokenness that happened, including the victim, but also the community. I've had so many victims say, listen, we don't want to send this guy away to prison, or we want to be involved in what's, we know this guy's off track. We want a better outcome for our community and for this person. Hello, and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with us here today is our co-host, the fascinating S. Lester Tate. Hey, Lester. How are you, Robin? <laughs> uh, yeah, fa- fascinating. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I don't think yeah. I've caught that adjective before. Well, I'm uh, going to try to come up with a different one every time I introduce you. <laughs> but uh, you do, doing? Do, doing great today. You know, it's fall, uh, and uh, which is uh, football season, and the weather is cooler. And uh, just couldn't ask, to, ask for, uh, for better uh, weather today. And uh, I actually got to uh, got to go to a court this morning for a little bit. And so it's nice wow. to have the courts back open uh, uh, after the, uh, the the pandemic that we've been dealing with for the past couple of years. It is. We're getting back uh, for our namesake. See you in court. We're actually making it real finally again. Um, see you in and court last sometime, night. See you in court sometime this century. Yes. Sometime uh, soon. Um, last night, I ha- had the pleasure of going to the Atlanta Bar Association litigation section um, bench and bar reception, where we awarded the Logan E. Bleckley Award to Justice Harold Melton, who just recently retired from the bench. Uh, so we had a reduced amount of people compared to normal. But man, it was sure good to see a bunch of good old friends and see Justice Melton. And and it was fun. So we're getting back. That's great. Yeah. That's well, great. I'm, I'm excited about our guest today, uh, Doug Amar. Um, Doug uh, and, and the work he does at the Georgia Justice Project. Um, but let me tell you a little bit more about Doug. Doug Douglas B. Amar is the executive director of Georgia Justice Project. He has been active an active presence at Georgia Justice Project since its beginning in 1986 starting as a volunteer, then joining as a staff attorney in 1990, Doug has led Georgia Justice Project as executive director since 1995. The Georgia Justice Project has sought to be advocates for their clients, not only by providing holistic criminal defense and social services, but also seeking systemic change in Georgia law that will reduce the number of people under correctional control and reduce barriers to entry. During his time as, a, as executive director, Georgia Justice Project has helped change 21 laws in Georgia that have worked to reduce barriers for re-entry for people impacted by the criminal justice system. GJP, as it is known, has continued to grow 
and expand its capacity to serve its clients with support from local foundations and national funders who have acknowledged their work. In 2020, GJP assisted over 6,000 Georgians with criminal justice issues and received a $5 million capacity grant from the Candida Fund, a national funder based in Atlanta. Originally from Charleston, West Virginia, Doug earned a bachelor's degree in history from Davidson College in 94, and then a law degree from Washington and Lee University in 1989. Doug has received numerous awards for his leading voice in criminal justice reform and reentry, including, but not limited to, Nonprofit Times 2019 Power and Influence Top 50, Urban League or Greater Atlanta's Man of Empowerment and Distinction, Davidson's College 2016 Game Changers, Emory University's Martin Luther King Jr. Community Service Award, Milner S. Ball Working in the Public Interest Lifetime Achievement Award, Georgia Center for Nonprofits Evelyn G. Ullman Innovative Leadership Award, Georgia Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers Indigent Defense Award, Davidson College's John Kackendall Award for Community Service, and Georgia Indigent Defense Council's Commitment Excellence Award. In addition to these recognitions, Doug is also an Micron Delta Kappa alumni inductee at Washington and Lee University and an Annie E. Casey Foundation Fellow. Wow. How about that? That's amazing. Doug Amar. I think Doug may be our most uh, uh, vetted and awarded guest uh, that we've had on no CU in court. No kidding. Doug, wow. Welcome to the show. My pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. Uh, as a mouthful, too. But really, really honored to have with us today. Um, first off, Doug, tell us a little bit about your career. I, I did just a tiny touch on it in my introduction, but can you tell us about your journey first? Sure. So, um, um, you know, I... Um, uh, was either going to go to law school or seminary. That's one reason I went to Davidson, actually, and uh, didn't feel called to law school. I mean, to seminary. Uh, and there's a, a story involving the football team there. I'll share if you want. But um, uh, so I, I, after Davidson, which is a pretty intense place, I'm, I was from an urban. I'm, I grew up very poor in West Virginia, a single parent. My, my dad who was an addict, and so I, you know, just getting through all these things were very <laughs> difficult in a lot of ways. So I decided to take some time off before I went to law school, and I went. Uh, ended up working for Procter and Gamble selling toothpaste, and they sent me to Birmingham, Alabama. And I, you know, just to do something different, I was so surprised I could get a job with a business with a history degree. But at any rate, um, but I, uh, around that time, I was really clear I was going to go to law school, and I started to feel very called to go to law school out of my faith as a Christian in service to the poor. And um, it was right around that time that I got a chance to move to Atlanta. Uh, with an urban, as a, a national ministry uh, to help run an, a ministry plunge for college kids. And um, all of us are going to the same church together in Grant Park. And folks heard that I was, you know, here and I was uh, going to law school in a few months. And they said, well, you should meet that guy in the corner over there with the guitar. And this tall guy, you know, John Pickens, who founded the organization, had just started really like a month before. So, uh, you know, I got involved that it took me a while to convince him to let me volunteer, but I volunteered that summer while I was on this other work I was helping with these college kids. Um, but at any rate, I mean, it was, um, you know, 
for me, it's been about a calling. It's been about trying to align in my sense of what I think I'm supposed to do uh, in the world with uh, being a lawyer. And, and the, that alignment just um, serendipitously and providentially lined up for me to meet John and be involved here you know, 35 years ago and stay involved and become the second full-time employee in 1990. He had just raised some money for the second person. I was uh, the third person or fourth person on staff, but the other two were part-time. I was a second lawyer. So for me, the journey was this combination of, uh, of serendipity, of, uh, of suffering, and, and of calling that, that led me to this place. I don't know if that's what you're getting to, Robin. I'm happy to talk about uh, it. I, I, I love that, Doug. And Lester and I talked about the power of a law license mm -hmm. and how if you want to really change, go get a law degree because it gives you so much power. Our friend, uh, Judge Herbst talks about that, that he found his way to make a change in equality for African-Americans by going to get his law degree. And he was waiting on his moment, waiting on his moment, but he was going to get a law degree so that when his moment came, he was going to be ready. So it sounds a lot like the, the way you came to law school or what you were seeking. Mm -hmm. I, I also I also love, and I, I've, I've, I've said this before, uh, and groups of lawyers that I've talked to. But, you know, if you go and look at uh, people who are members of the British bar, uh, they don't say that they were admitted to the bar, you know, which is sort of like going to the movie theater where you get a ticket. And you know, if you got a ticket, you paid the price, they let you in. They, they talk about it as what was your year of call? When were you called <laughs> to the bar? Hmm. And I've always liked that expression. And I guess, you know, growing up in the in the Baptist church, I'd heard the term called to preach. And, you know, I, I guess I felt a little called to call to litigate or whatever. But uh, I, I just think that's a great, a great one there. Uh, one of the things, Doug, that I have, uh, I told you, I'm, I'm the guy that throws curveballs here. And I, you know, when I cross examine people, I always listen to what they say. And there's a football story in there somewhere. You, you brought up a football story, and I'm not going to let that I'm not going to yeah. let that pass. We're, we're in football season, so you have to share. It's a great time to be a UGA fan, for sure. I'm watching all the games like everybody else. It's, it's wonderful. Well, so I, I did play football for a long time, thought I was going to play in college. I was supposed to be a lot bigger than I was, and I was really supposed to be a lot better than I was. I ended up wrestling in college and actually playing rugby for all, all four years. But at, at Davidson in the football season, you know, it was kind of a tradition, like a lot of schools, I'm sure, the freshmen come and act silly and you – they have a small stand. It's Division One sports, but it's very small, you know. And um, they're, they're in the stand, there's like this riser, and there's a, a place like a ledge about four feet off the riser. It's probably eight or ten feet off the ground. And I would – it's just sort of the thing you did as a freshman. You would – people would go there in your halls. You would come up with the silliest, most obnoxious cheer, and you would stand on that wall, face the audience, which is full of students and professors and uh, alumni and, and parents, and you would lead a cheer. And no matter how silly the cheer was – no matter how weird it was, everybody followed the cheer. And I noticed when I was sitting there and I, you know, I was an obnoxious freshman. I mean, I did that. You can people who know me say, oh yeah, you were probably number a number one in that list on that line. But I would notice that sometimes the people would stand up on, on that little space and stand in front of it and face the audience while the football games in the back uh, that like moments later or moments before, the very cheer that person did was done by the cheerleader standing down on the field, right on the, on the, on the track, feet away, you know, dressed in the right uniform, coordinated, syncopated, and in unison. And never did I watch the, the stands follow the cheerleaders. Actually, ever. 
But no matter who stood on that space, people followed parents, professors. And I, it was at the end of the football season that, that I felt that was my sign. And again, I'm a person of faith, my, my sign from God not to go to seminary. And, um, and I said, at that point, I said, okay, well, I guess I'm supposed to go to law school. And, and the way I make sense of it even today, you know, 40 years later, is that, you know, sometimes when you're in the right space, you're told what to, what to, to say. You're, you're, the people are expecting you to lead them in a, in a particular way that people are sometimes less likely to follow. But if you come out of the stands and you stand in the gap between where the action is and where the people are, and you're one of them, and you, and you have a direction, you have a voice, that people are more likely to follow that. And I had no idea that I was going to be, you know, called and you know, get destined to do this work for, for my career. Although I probably could have, many of my friends probably could have predicted it. But the point is, it was, it was, it very much lines up where I am today. I mean, it's to your point, being a lawyer and to, and to Judge Phillips' point, being a lawyer gives you an amazing ability to take, to take a position in society. You re, we represent power and influence and opportunity. And we can use that in a way that is just amazing. And sometimes, uh, and I'm not, I'm, you know, uh, sometimes when you think you're going to do that very thing, uh, standing of the cheerleaders, uh, nobody really follows. That was sort of what I got from that freshman year in football season. That's a great story. That is a great story. Um, wow. Uh, Doug, tell us a little bit about Georgia Justice Project. I, I, I just touched on just a tiny bit, but I don't know that our listeners are that familiar with the Georgia Justice Project. Um, so tell us, tell us about it uh, and, and what its mission is. Sure. So our mission, and I'll, I will read you our mission statement, which is uh, we, we always have to update those things. But this is pretty accurate, even though we made it a handful of years ago. And the Georgia Justice Project, our mission statement reads, is to strengthen our community by demonstrating a better way to represent and support individuals in the criminal justice system and reduce barriers to reentry. GJP, that's what we call ourselves, Georgia Justice Project. GJP promotes innovative change through direct legal representation, public policy, education, and coalition building. So our work is really founded in direct service. The biggest thing we do every day and for 35 years is, is represent people. And every year, we, we, as you've read, we touch thousands of people. We actually represent and work with represented families of around 1,000 people a year. And that work over the many years of working with folks on the front end of the criminal justice system to the middle to the back end of the system led us to sort of go, what I say, upstream and to try to change some of the laws that affected the issues we see and, and saw then and see today. So our work, I often say our work is sort of, um, I'm a three bucket person, so you'll hear me talk about three buckets a lot, I guess, but the, the, our three buckets of work is our direct service, legal representation, social services, and that breaks down a little bit, we can talk about. Then policy work, again, taking what we see on the street and in the lives of the folks we serve and trying to make some change at the state house. And then uh, community education and outreach. So taking what we've learned and done, successes, if you will, uh, and make sure that people know. I learned the hard way that I thought you got a law changed and I thought, oh, we're done, run to the next one. The law change is only as good as people know about it, uh, people can use it, and, and, the, and it's enforced and, and done appropriately on the street in the courthouses. So we spent a lot of time uh, doing a lot of community education, including judges and lawyers and reentry folks and nonprofits. Um, we have, I, you know, so so those are the three basic buckets of work. Is the way I often uh, break it down. So so how are you? You know, what one thing that I think uh, most of our listeners are are familiar with is is the 
as having a public defender uh, will say that's uh, either a point. When I started practicing law, the way you got a public defender, and I did it many times, you're sitting in the jury box. Calder called and the judge says, Mr. Tate, I'm going to let you uh, uh, represent uh, Ms. Clark here, uh, who's charged with these heinous crimes. We'll start the trial tomorrow. And uh, now we have a public defender system, which is a little more organized, although I do hate that it takes some of the experience away from lawyers uh, that, that may not otherwise be trying uh, criminal cases. But how does your organization, you know, when you talk about direct action, uh, I know that's probably what you put in grants, but uh, other lawyers and stuff, uh, you're different from the public defender's office. And oh, yeah. can you tell us how? Sure. So, so I should say, every, first of all, everything we do in terms of legal representation and everybody we serve, we are their lawyer first. I mean, if we say you're a client, we are your lawyer and we have social workers on our team and we follow people long term. But the, the way you become one of our clients is we represent you. And, um, and there are three different doors to come in. But the biggest door we're talking about here, the door we're most, know, well, a lot of folks know us for is this criminal defense door. And that work is the work that is sort of similar to the public defender. So there's a few things that make us very different from really anybody. Uh, one is we do not take a court appointments. Um, we, we don't take funds from the government, actually, either. So all of the work we do is privately supported. All the work we do, there's no, there's no charge for it. We don't charge our clients any money to represent them and do our work. But really what makes us different, and those are sort of some systematic differences, you know, how we show up and sort of the nature of our relationships. But I think that one of the significant things we, we talk about that makes us different, and we call it holistic criminal defense. So if we take on a client, I'll just say, I mean, just, just moments ago, I always have to say, I have to look back less than 24 hours. I was running around getting my tea, and one of our client, former clients showed up. Uh, to, he had some issue he wanted, a little bit of help with like filing something. It is a, and he goes back to before I got here, and he served 24 years in prison. So when we say holistic defense, we stayed with him. We represented him in court. We visited him in prison. And even when I got here 30 some years ago, I started visiting him as well. And he got out about now about right, 12, 15 years ago, doing great. He got in a car accident and he was driving. It was his job driving a delivery truck for years. And somebody hit him recently and he's got some issues there. But the point is, is that, that when we say holistic defense, one of the things that makes us different is we follow folks all the way through. So this, this man who I just hugged and gave him, you know, we had some food in the kitchen. I'm giving him some food is... Um, is represents this idea that we it's never it's not over when the case is over for us we're in long term the other dimension I often talk about that makes us different is while we represent and as we begin to represent somebody our social service team does an assessment and has to agree that we're going to work together so we actually have clients sign a contract again there's no money involved we say listen we you know our assessment is you have these issues going on we want to help you reach your goals we really are goal oriented for them what are you where do you want to be what are your goals in life and then we say then agree to work with us, our social service team, to get to those goals. And that support doesn't end when the case is over. Do we do we do certainly a lot of you know alternative sentencing, if you will. Uh, but the reality is just like this man, actually two people actually came in during the last hour that I happen to give a hug to, and both of them go back uh, you know over 30 years. And so that is sort of that what makes that's what makes us very different. Sort of the relationship based and the identifying and addressing the underlying issues of why somebody's walking in our office in the first place. You've mentioned re-entry, um, which sounds like a term of art. Can you tell us what that means? Yeah, and this is, a, you know, we, I just, uh, re-entry is an interesting term. We often have debates internally what it means, and, and people use it all over the place. We know <laughs> it can mean different things to different people. Um, so re-entry, 
uh, a lot of people in the, in the, in the world think reentry is just getting out of prison or jail. And then what happens when, as soon as you hit the street and the process to getting back on your feet, to getting a job, to getting housing, to getting, just moving your life back to some form of normalcy. And that's generally, uh, I would agree. It, 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 but I, the only thing I would add to that is reentry is anytime somebody has been in the criminal justice system and sometimes it's just being arrested. You don't even have to be convicted is it creates these collateral consequences. It creates these overlays, this taint, the stain that can impede someone's ability to move on with their life. So, um, and this is well-documented, we can talk about it. We write a lot about this. We pass a lot of laws about it, but the point is any touch of the criminal justice system can affect you years later, 40 years later. We have clients just got arrested 40 years ago and it stops them from getting an occupational licensing or uh, getting a job. So reentry to me means is, to re is helping somebody overcome the barriers and getting back on track after the criminal justice system, be it yesterday or like these two gentlemen today, 30 years ago, uh, and helping them, um, you know, maintain a, a productive uh, life, a, a goal, a life that they're trying to lead that somehow is impeded by the, by the former engagement with the criminal justice system. So, so Doug, I uh, remember uh, a celebrity that uh, athlete that got uh, sent to prison and uh, he, he comes out and, uh, you know, somebody said, oh, he really didn't learn anything, you know, from that. And somebody said, of course not. He went to prison, not Princeton. And uh, I've, uh, I, I think about that, <laughs> that quote frequently. And it sounds like a lot of the things that you all do, uh, you know, you're maybe not sending people to get an Ivy League education, but you, you're trying to work with them on what their problems may be to help them to, I guess, get smarter and to, uh, to be able to be more functioning members uh, of society. Um, and, and so t tell us a little bit about how that works and what the challenges are uh, with doing that sometimes. Sure. And since I know not only, of course, you all are lawyers, but your audience is mostly lawyers and judges. I just want to say that that work I'm going to talk about, uh, Lester, is based on an attorney-client relationship. I mean, I, you know, there's lots of groups that try to help people when they get out of jail or prison. We are leveraging the fact that we are a free, hopefully thorough, aggressive lawyer for them. We've earned their trust before the case is closed. And that gives us the opportunity, right, to sort of say, listen, you know, we're going to stay with you. What's going on in your life? I mean, if, if we didn't have the trust of our clients, especially this guy who came in, in his case, I know about his case, but I didn't, I, you know, I was in law school when the case went down. I mean, it was a murder case. It was tough. It went to trial. It was, you know, you know, I've had a lot of criminal defense lawyers say, how in the world can you walk into prison after losing a murder trial for somebody and say, hey, we're here to stay with you? Aren't they mad at you? Aren't, aren't, isn't there a lot of, you know, I mean, this is a great opportunity for lawyers to leverage what we do best and the leverage of trust we earn with people and leverage it in, in another dimension. So I just got to say, before even I talk about, you know, programs and services and assessments and uh, housing and jobs and all that stuff, it, it really is based on an attorney-client relationship. And, and it's a great, you know, privilege, you know, to be able to leverage that relationship to the client's uh, interest beyond the case, beyond the legal matter. So I just want to make that plug. And that makes us of course, a little different as well. But so the issue of the issues of when folks on reentry, I mean, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's, I mean, you have to start with the most basic and the most basic that everybody, anybody working on poverty issues, not even criminal justice, just poverty, will tell you that housing, you got a place to stay and you have income. You have the ability to feed yourself or your family. You have a place, a roof over your head. Those are the first two big ones. And that's always the first two that we're always looking for when somebody is coming out. I mean, whether we're following somebody who's been in for a month or for 30 years. 
Um, and is that is there going to be that kind of ability? So our team, uh, if if that isn't, you know, we do a lot of work lining up jobs. I, we, I can, uh, you know, we do a lot of work lining up housing. Um, so that's that's always a part of it. But in terms of the other issues, in terms of learning, if you will, back to your Princeton versus prison uh, point, uh, you know, the criminal justice system. I just had a long talk yesterday with a bunch of reporters about some of this, and I always say, you know, uh, crime is uh, crime is not a cause; it's a symptom. When somebody commits a crime, it's it's more than likely that the, something else is going on in their life that causes them to do that. The data is really clear, for instance, that I think the DOJ, Department of Justice, says that 75% of every arrest in the country, and I know they did a study specifically here in the city jail years ago, but the numbers always sort of add up around the country. 75 is a low number, as high as 80%, maybe 85% of every arrest and charge in the country is related to drugs and alcohol. So if, if we're interested in folks not going back in the way they came, you know, you've got to be aware and being, you know, trying to have some dealing with addiction issues and, and what's going on there. And I, I couple that, then mental health. A lot of folks in the system, you know, you all probably know this data point. It's a sad data point that the largest provider of mental health services in the state of Georgia is the prison system. There are more beds for mental health that are being provided on a daily basis, annual basis for folks who are mentally ill in the state of Georgia and the prison system than they are any other facilities combined. I mean, so, so again, you start to build that hierarchy, you're starting to see these issues. Do I have a place to stay? Do I have food? Do I have a mental health issue that's stopping me from being moving forward? Do I have an addiction issue? And then we get to issues of, of, you know, of family, uh, of relationships, of education, um, and, and more softer, if you will, you know, mental health issues like anger management and, and choice and, you know, cognitive issues that the prison system has taken on more and more to try to train folks on. But so let's try on that's responsive, but that's, I mean, that's the way we often think about here. Those sort of the bucket of issues. Yes. Now, excellent response. The, we, Lester in, brought up the public defender system in Georgia. Do, does your office have lawyers who actually try criminal cases? Yep. Oh yeah. I'm involved in a couple of homicide cases right now. How, how do they get to you versus asking for a public defender? I always say that's never a problem. <laughs> it's never. Uh, uh, I was a people joke. Somebody, every time folks who don't know me well, will say, Doug, how's business? Or I was picking up some food at a place this morning. I mean, how's, how's your business going? I said, I always have the same. Reason. I said, there's always a lot of work for a free lawyer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, you know, I've been here again 31 years. And when I even got here, we tracked this and I used to track it. And we have some, we have a lot of data, but we so much, this number has not changed much at all. That for the last probably 20 years, we turn away 95% of the people who ask us for help on the criminal justice, on the criminal defense side. Um, we are essentially the only alternative to the public defender in the entire state. I mean, people think, well, if you're not going to help them, Doug, who else? There is a public defender system. And of course, Courts and the systems required, uh, you know, through Gideon v. Wayne, right, to, to supply a lawyer. And every now and then say, well, who else is doing, who else can we call? And I'm like, there's nobody. And on our criminal defense side of our work, we, we've limited for years, mainly just due to just travel restraints, we limit our caseload to mostly Fulton and DeKalb County, because we're right here in downtown Atlanta. And um, and we do, every now and then we'll spill out, I've handled, you know, but, but the point is, if you call and say, I've got a case in Gwinnett or, you know, Savannah, or uh, we say, sorry. And they say, who else can we call? And I said, there's nobody else. So um, you can imagine, we rarely advertise. We never advertise for clients. I mean, you know, we don't. We don't have to. Mm -mm. A lot of nonprofits send us people. You know, ministries, churches. Our name. Uh, there's uh, two guys who were in last week. 
and it's a sequence of people on one cell block that we kept taking the other person's case because they, they would come back and say, hey, I got this lawyer. And hopefully they said, they're great. You need them. And so we, you know, that happens a lot, you know, a word of mouth, even in the jail. Again, we don't need that because we still turn away the vast majority of people who ask us for help. How many lawyers do you have on staff? Well, I, and I should know this exactly because we've been hiring some more and there's been, a, I, I think it's right, it's, I think it's about 16, or right about 15 lawyers or so. And how, how big is the, the total staff? It's over 31 people uh, with a few of those being part-time. That's a, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big uh, law office right there. I mean, <laughs> uh, you'd, you'd clearly be the biggest law office in Cartersville, Georgia, uh, if, uh, uh, if you were located here. Uh, one of the things I have to ask you and just uh, just talking to you and listening to you and listening to your enthusiasm uh, about all of this, uh, you know, I, I, I still fancy myself a criminal defense lawyer and uh, have uh, tried a lot of a lot of felony criminal cases over the years. And it's just uh, it's it's brutal, stressful work. Uh, you know, much more so, you know, I've, I've defended corporations and, you know, the jury goes out and you really, really, really want to win. If you're in a plaintiff's case, you got some skin in the game. You've got to know your client real well, you know, e even more. But boy, you know, when the jury goes out in a murder trial and, you know, the only sentence is, is life, it's just with or without parole, your stomach is just really tapped up. How do you remain so enthusiastic about this? I mean, you, you talk about you talk about visiting people in prison like uh, like you're taking the kids to Six Flags or something. I mean, you know, how, how do you personally, uh, uh, you know, maintain that buoyant level of optimism and lead all these other lawyers, uh, obviously, with that? Well, thank you for the observation. Thank you. Um, and I think you used a really key word and somebody, a number of people, and that was optimism. And a couple of folks years ago got me to think about this. And I had folks, you know, we, we have a lot of people stop in and we have a lot of relationships. And I remember some uh, law professors from California were here for, for another event or friends of friends. And I, you know, they hung out and for a while I showed them around and, and they, a couple of them just stopped me and said, wait, wait, what's going on here? And they, they were in the office and they're talking to the staff and we had lunch and whatever. Cause he said, I said, what do you mean? He said, listen, I, I, I've been around criminal defense, well, I mean, clinics and, uh, I've been in nonprofits that do heavy criminal work and you guys are doing serious work. And I, and they made this point. They said, why is everybody so damn happy? Why? I've never seen the place. So many people smiling, like what's, what's going on. And, and it was really a, a wonderful, I hadn't really thought about, I mean, they might, I mean, it was one of the first times I went, well, let me think about that way. Not just, and I liked <laughs> it. It wasn't about just me. It was about the team. It was about the environment. And, um, and here's the way I usually answer that in the way I think, and I've been thinking about this for a few years. And that is, is a lot of people in this space, especially criminal justice, are really fighting against something. As a criminal defense lawyer, you're taught to fight the state's case. You, you know, that's, you know, you know this, you all know this, uh, criminal defense lawyers are often trained not to ask your client what happened. Don't tell me a story. I'm, you know, I'm fighting the state's case. I don't need to know what you tell me, right? That's just going to complicate matters, right? That's a whole, whole other podcast. <laughs> but uh, we approach things from even our client's perspective to the work we do in the policy work to the engagement from what are we fighting for? What are we trying to create? I mentioned earlier that in the intake process, we ask clients what their goals are. This isn't about just where were you in the land of January 28th? This isn't about how do we defend the case? It's like, where are you trying to get to in your life? What do you want in your life? What's not happening in your life you'd like to see? So we approach it from that, I mean, we approach so many things from this, you know, we're trying to create something, then we're trying to fight something. 
So I think I think when you when you try to create something, you I mean, first of all, that is a generative act. It's an act that, and also it's an act that it's much more easily or you can more easily to invite people into that act versus fighting against something when you're trying to stop something. It, that's a that's a different energy. So I think the way we've been organized at our core, our DNA is just about that creative, optimistic lens. And and I'll tell you. This, we'll talk about policy if you want, but this is, I found this to be an incredible asset when it comes to policy. And uh, because I I think, um, because I think just like criminal defense lawyers are often trained to fight against something, you know, a lot of nonprofits who do policy work are just, I would talk to them, they're fighting against the law. And I would say, well, what are you trying to build? Where are you trying to go? What do you want the world to look like? And I think that's, it takes more energy, it takes more time, it takes more deliberateness, but boy, that's where the good stuff is. Yeah, you know, Lester has tried a bunch of criminal trials. Um, I've tried 75 trials in my career, and one one was criminal. And it was a murder case, and I, I blogged about it, and I called it my first and last murder case, murder trial, because I, I cannot, I can't take it. I couldn't take uh, seeing my client, he was, he was convicted, uh, seeing my client handcuffed right there at counsel's table and Oh, it was so sad. I just couldn't take it. So that was my first and last. So God bless you and your lawyers for <laughs> continuing the fight. I'm glad we have people like you because uh, I'm not cut out for that. I, I can lose money and time, but seeing your client go off to prison, that's really, really, really hard. Uh, I, I remember uh, years ago, I had a criminal client and uh <clears throat> Uh, the, the trial was on Monday and I was prepared to do the regular thing trial lawyers do, uh, you know, on the weekend before a trial. And that was get ready for the whole thing. And it was one of those uh, charges charged with aggravated assault on a police officer. And he comes to my office on Friday and uh, uh, he, he said, I appreciate you re- re- meeting with me today. I was going to take my family to Lake Winnipesoka tomorrow. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking <laughs> like, how, you know, how, that's, just, that's just different people deal, deal with stress sort of in different ways. Um, you, you know, one of the things that you, you know, it, it's interesting, you, you have a very, you've got a very spiritual theme to your life. And I, I, I admire, I admire that about you. Uh, you, you know, Christ implored us to visit those in prison, but that's probably the least observed uh, Christian ritual that we have. Uh, out there, but people who prosecute cases would talk to you about the other side of that, about about the victims, and uh, you, you know the, these are people who've done, been done wrong through no fault of our own. A lot of the same basic arguments that Robin and I, when we try plaintiffs' cases, you, you know, uh, make about about our clients, and uh, you know, is I, I guess what I really want to ask you, and I told you I'd throw some curveballs. You know, is this really the Georgia Justice Project or is it really the Georgia Grace Project where you're affording grace to people that which is was is needed, but maybe maybe really not deserved? Well, I think the beauty of grace is it's never deserved. Uh, that's the point of grace uh, is that it's it's an it, you don't deserve grace. You know, you know, forgiveness is given. It's not earned. Um but let me go back to one point. I, I appreciate what you're saying. I mean, you, you, that's a great question. And I like the way you bundled it. But, you know, we are um, this point about victims and prosecutors. Um, so I'm a huge believer in restorative justice, which is essentially the criminal 
uh, iteration of ADR, of mediation. And it goes back millennium. It's in the Old Testament. It's in most indigenous cultures. The idea that when someone does something wrong, when they've broken the rules of society and harm somebody, the most important thing to do, and as you all as civil lawyers know this better than me, is to make the victim whole, is to get, is to heal what the brokenness that happened, including the victim, but also the community. You know, as a, the American jurisprudence uh, and the English jurisprudence got away from this approach, and I really, and actually it's William the Conqueror, there's a lot written about this, but it was a thousand years ago. And William the Conqueror said, you know, if you break a law, he was having trouble getting all these English lords to pay him his, uh, his, his um, you know, the rights and privileges he thought he deserved. So he said, listen, now when you all break a law, you have to answer to me in the court and the state. And that is, we, we don't think twice about it. Again, it's a thousand years later. We don't think twice about it today when someone has drugs or hurt somebody or stole something or even murdered somebody, killed someone. We don't think twice about, well, they have to answer to the state. Um, we, for years in our criminal practice, uh, we try as best we can to integrate restorative opportunities. And, but I would say that there is really no uh, systemic opportunity to inject restorative justice where essentially the victim and or the community and the person charged, the person who did the harm, meet or there's some kind of reconciliation process, some form of mediation, if you will. Uh, Right now, one of our projects, I'll say this is totally one of our newest projects that I've been wanting for 35 years to start, is to try to start a restorative justice center as a vehicle so judges, prosecutors, and even police could send cases there and say, if the community is willing to deal with this, you all deal with it. So let me just say, first of all, that, that, that there is a huge gap of how we understand harm in the community and, and the role of victims and, and the way victims' voice should show up and does show up. My experience in doing you know, criminal defense work for 30, you know, 30 plus years is that usually, at least for our side, we have more contact with the victims than most prosecutors do. We've brought victims in, even on homicide cases and ag assaults and armed robberies and theft. And uh, I think there's a huge yearning from people who have been hurt to have some form of, of uh, reconnection and some form of accountability with the person who did the harm. That opportunity doesn't happen that often. And in fact, the system, our criminal justice system, isn't really set up to do that. It, you know, it's set up to do, to, to decide whether you did the crime and to punish you. Um, the victims are an ancillary, a, a witness for the state. Now, there's a lot of victim witness programs. I mean, inside uh, DA's offices, I'm not, I'm saying that the, the whole nature of how we set this thing up is, is not focused on victims enough. And, and I believe this, and that my experience is, I think, true, that, and you all probably know this a little bit from your own experience, is that the people who are victims in most criminal cases are just like often the defendants. They're coming from the same community. There's, you know, there's coming, you know, and so they are, I've had so many victims say, listen, we don't want to, we, you know, this, we don't want to send this guy away to prison or we want to be involved in what's, we know this guy's off track. We want a better outcome for our community and for this person. So I think um, there's a huge gap and I think a yearning uh, that we, not just we, but I mean, we want to be able to fill and this isn't just a thing that we would do. We want to have a mechanism so any defense lawyer, any prosecutor, any judge, pre-post-sentencing, pre-indictment, pre-arrest, whatever, could say, go see if you can work that out. Or go see if you all can come up with a resolution. Doesn't mean the case goes away. Could mean the case does go away. So, so let me just put a, a pen in this piece about victims, which I'm very sensitive to. Uh, and I believe that, and I really believe that I've had so many amazing outcomes because we did get the victims involved. And even when someone was harmed. 
So I, I know I'm a little off a point here, Les, but I have to. So, your, your point is uh, very well taken. There's a great quote uh, from Logan Blackley, who is the Georgia uh, Chief Justice. He was the Solicitor General back when in, in a county. And he said, one of the most amazing things was that from term to court to term to court, the same people showed up. They frequently switched roles that go from defendant to victim to witness. Uh, but it was it was it was basically the same folks that 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 were there in the courtroom every time they had criminal court. That's right. Doug, so, I was going to tell you that Lester and I, a couple of weeks ago, Lester ha has been the president of CBOTA, Southeastern American Board of Trial Advocates, and invited me to come and speak at the annual meeting down in Destin two or three weekends ago. Um, and I did a presentation on what is justice. And we talked a little bit about restorative justice because I've seen you talk about it. Um, and one of the examples that I gave was a short video clip of the case of, um, I think her name's Amber Geiger, a police officer who shot a man in his own apartment in Texas, a man named Botham Jean. And um, at sentencing, Botham's brother, young brother who was 19, Brant Jean is his name, uh, gave the most powerful speech about restorative justice I've ever seen, uh, where he asked to hug her. He said, I, I, I don't want ill for you. I think you should deliver life to Christ. That's what both of them would want. And I don't, I, he goes, I don't even want to see you go to prison. Um, just, just go, you know, have a good life. That's what we want for you. And then he asked the judge, may I hug her? Which, as you know, there's no hugging, but there, there's no hugging in the courtroom by a criminal defendant who's who's been convicted, especially. I mean, that one murder trial I had, there was no touching of loved ones. Um, but the judge said yes. And the video shows them hugging and he's telling her, I want the best for you. This is this is the brother of the man who was innocently killed in his own apartment, did nothing wrong. And. The judge actually took some heat for allowing that hug to occur, which is shocking to me. But I think it's like what you're talking about. It's got to be a mindset of this will help our community. Let this occur. This may help. That's right. That's right. So I, that, I, that's a beautiful story. I, I, I knew about the homicide case. I didn't know about that resolution. I'm going to try to find that video. I'll send I'll send it to you because it's powerful and people yeah. were in tears watching it about four minute clip and it was is so moving yeah, robin's whole thing was great it was really excellent oh thanks hey so, doug do y'all ever get involved in mass incarceration issues like well, you know when when we've got so many people in prison because they had a gram of pot in their pocket well i mean uh, well i would say everything we do is about mass incarceration. <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't think there's anything we do let me I should back up and say a couple of things. Uh, we've been focused a lot on, on one one door, uh, one of our doors into the work, and that's the criminal defense door. But there are really two other doors. You all heard me say I'm a three bucket person. So there are two other doors into the work um, and to become a client. And the, uh, the, the other next oldest door is our work around criminal records, mainly or, or just barriers to reentry, because we're doing more and more in that area. Uh, something that's impeding your ability to get back on your feet. But the, uh, and I could talk about that. And that's our biggest door. We work with clients all over the state. I uh, have, have a ton of volunteer lawyers helping on that is, front as well. Is that expungement of their record? Basically, right. That's right. Okay. And, and, and we've added more and more to that, occupational licensing issues, probation barriers, uh, et cetera. 
voting issues as well. Um, but one of the other more sort of direct um, uh, sort of in prison work we've done, I've been going to prison for years, like the, the guy I just saw, even though, you know, for instance, but we, about three years ago, and maybe this gets a little bit on point, Robin, I just want to make sure you ha have the sense of these three doors so it might help get to the more sure. is that the Department of Corrections opened up a new prison. They took over an old abandoned prison inside the perimeter here in Atlanta. It used to be called the Metro Women's Prison, now off Moreland Avenue. And it was abandoned for 10 years. And they reopened it three years ago, and they're calling it the Metro Reentry Facility. And we got involved before they even opened. I, I'm not even sure how we all got involved. But for the last now almost three and a half years, it was May of uh, three years ago, we have been out there um, working with folks, uh, remove barriers to reentry before they get out. And as many years as I've gone into prison, uh, visiting our clients, that one-on-one -on -one relationship continuing through the system, I always say, I've never gone into prison and said, who needs a lawyer? And that's basically what we, we've done. But we've done it also with the lens, realizing you say that in the, anywhere, people are going to say, I need your help, raise your hand. We've been really focused using some national data and some national experts to guide us about what were the biggest barriers to entry. And so um, that work, we uh, I think last fiscal year, I should know this number exactly, but I think we work with over 246 guys in that one prison. It holds about 350 people. We are actually uh, surveying, assessing everybody in the prison um, and helping them you know, remove some of these barriers which is a very, very interesting work. And it's been eye-opening for me. And I always say, if, you know, as long as I've been doing this, it, it takes a lot for me to be uh, startled and surprised by some of the issue. So I, I just want you to know, those are the three big doors. So we are often working at the front end of the system, in the middle of the system in incarceration and the total back end, somebody who's long been out and still has some issues, like whether it's probation, we have a whole work we've done on probation. We actually you know, passed a, a law that went into effect just a few months ago and have at least one or really two lawyers who are focused on representing people who have um, probation as a barrier. But uh, so I, I would say my, my quick answer is everything we do is about is about really two goals. And we are really clear about this. And I should have almost started the whole segment with this. Our two goals are to reduce the number of people under correctional control in Georgia and reduce the barriers to reentry. Everything we do aligns all the different buckets of work, uh, the, the legal work, the social work, the policy work, the community engagement align around this, those two goals. So that's why I say, yes, everything we do is about trying to reduce the number of folks who are under correctional control, which means jail, prison, and probation and parole. So let me, just, I'll stop there for a moment. I'm sorry if I went on too long. That's okay. You, we were gonna talk a little bit about policy and the Georgia Justice Project's um, involvement in, in policy, actually going to the Georgia legislature, lobbying for change in law or lobbying for a new law. Um, which which seems sort of disconnected from being a trial lawyer representing a person. But, um, for example, you mentioned pro probation. I know that y'all got this new law passed about early termination of probation. I didn't know anything about it. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how you achieved that? Yeah, sure. And I, and I would say, I, um, you know, we only got involved in policy about 12 or so years ago. And, and the bulk of my time here, I mean, we're, we're you know, really our ethos is really about serving people, about being somebody's lawyer and they're staying with them and the social services, removing barriers. And it was a big jump for us to decide to go upstream. And, and I had no idea how to do that work. I mean, I used to live a few, like a half mile from the Capitol and I, I went in the Capitol maybe once. I mean, I've never, went, why would I go in? I mean, no reason. <laughs> Um, and then I, when we, I, mean, I was, I'll be, I was in Capitol. It's, it's fun. That's right. So, 
uh, it was it was a new experience for us, and I had no idea how to even begin that. And we I talked to a lot of people. We have worked with a wonderful set of, of lobbyists, both as pro bono and as paid, depending on how our funding goes, from Nelson Mullins. I always have to give them a plug. They've been uh, our nice. our Sherpas, our our wizened guides, our uh, consultants. Uh, and they are wonderful. Um, so so this law that we got passed, our most recent, it was signed on May the third, and the governor it went into effect immediately. And I, I got to give some background here so you have a sense. Georgia has the largest number of people under correctional control of anywhere in the country. And we have had for decades. And what that means is per capita, we have more people in jail, prison, or on probation or parole. But the reason when you break down the data, you start to see, it becomes very clear that we aren't the leaders in incarceration, though we're pretty high. We're fourth in the country. Uh, we aren't the leaders on, um, on necessarily parole. Where we are really, really bad is felony probation. The reason we stick out way past every other state, and I have charts to show you, they could show you this, but visually it makes a great statement how far beyond everybody else we are, is because we have more people on felony probation than any other state. And, and, the, and the reason we have that is because there's two big things, and this has been studies under Governor Deal's effort and the Justice Boggs reform, uh, led the Reform Council for many years, all this data is out there. And they would say two things. They would say, one, we don't have any caps on probation, a lot of states say on felony probation, you either get three to five years. We have no caps. So there are judges in Fulton County, and it's been in the paper, so I'm not telling you anything you all know, uh, who've given 80-year probated sentences. We have clients with 30-year probated sentences on drug cases in Fulton County. So when, when our neighbors, Alabama and North Carolina, for instance, limit them to three to five years. So that's the first big issue, why, why it's such a big problem. Mm -hmm. The second is, is we also have uh, these backloaded sentences or, or split sentences, as they call them. So a judge says, well, I'm going to you know, give you five years in prison and five years on probation, which in a lot of states don't do it that way. So we, we allow for this huge amount of folks to end up on probation you know, without ever going to prison or even after prison. And it's made our numbers, our numbers are ridiculous. And, uh, and everybody will tell you that. I mean, you ask the Department of Community Supervision, nobody likes these numbers. People in law enforcement do not like these numbers. And there's a lot of data that suggests that having this many people on probation for too long is counterproductive to recovery and reentry. Um, the, the most effective use of supervision is usually within the first two years. If someone is going to do well or do poorly, you usually know within 18 months to two years. So that all these national studies will tell you that's when you should focus your attention as, as a state. And really anything much beyond that is superfluous, really, and costs money without having a good yeah. I was going to say, I would think being on probation for 30 years, that's a lot of fees a person has to pay. And how are the, how, and they're trying to get back on their feet. Absolutely. And a, an employer sees that record every time you like, we'll see you're on probation, right? Which is a barrier to, to work, a barrier to employment and, and, and to housing. So I just want to frame the issue first. So you understand how bad we are, how much of an issue this is. So let me let me stop there. But say, yes, we were very uh, we started working on this issue uh, a, a few years ago. We've known about the issue. We got a little bit more funding and we're able to uh, and, and throw some more resources towards it. Um, and I was really we were really. Um, yeah, very delighted that we work with so many good people at the Capitol and got this through the way we did. But I should also say that the state under under Governor Deal, there was an effort to try to, to address this. Again, nobody likes these numbers, the fact that Georgia is a leader on this. And it was a law that went into effect or was passed in 2017 that tried to sort of get people off probation early. And it basically, it was a three-year mark and it was, it was pretty convoluted. And when we started talking to the, the powers that be and said, we need to do something about this, they said, well, let's wait and see, let's wait till three years after this law runs to see how it goes. And so uh, the data came out last, it was really, I think last September or last October, 
three years after this all went into effect to see if people were getting off probation. And they and there's some data I can send it to you. But here's the here's the kicker: is that the law was affected theoretically about fifty thousand people. It's like 40, uh, 45 to fifty thousand people. Meaning, forty-five to fifty thousand people were eligible to have their probation end under this law that was passed. And the number of people who have who got off probation early under that law was two hundred and thirteen. Oh my gosh! Good so lord, something number, didn't work. It didn't work. And so when that number came out, you know, I think the powers of be said, "Okay, okay, what what you got?" Like, you know. And so we work really closely with DCS and and the Department of Community Supervision and uh, the folks there. We work with. Uh, the, the prosecutors, we worked with the judges and said, and we devised the path. It wasn't, and it was in a lot of ways, sort of a, more of a cleanup, a tightening of that law that that, uh, that made it faster and easier and automatic for many people to get off probation early. And that law affected 48,000 people immediately, who many of whom have already gotten off probation, like within a, a few weeks or months of the law passing, without them doing anything which is the way you really want it to work. So I'm, I'm getting into the weeds on this, but uh, it's been an interesting journey, and, but we still have more work to do. We, still, we really do. So the passing of the law, you're getting involved in that policy, immediately helped thousands of people. Yep. So it sounds like it was worth the, the, the effort to, to, get invo- to go to the Capitol. <laughs> you know, when you said when you said a while ago that, uh, you know, why, why would I go in the Capitol? You know, you know, I lived, a, uh, you know, a couple of lived a mile from there. Why would I go in there? You know, Jesus also teaches us to walk among sinners. So that might be a reason <laughs> that you would go down there. And uh, but it sounds like, too, that's it's interesting. That's sort of buried in your answer there is you talk about prosecutors and judges and and, and other folks like that. Uh, so as opposed to being in a combative sort of situation where, yeah, this is, this is, this is what a bunch of criminal defense lawyers want. Good, good chance of getting that passed. But it sounds like you've gone in there and you've actually worked together and built a coalition so that you kind of march, uh, arm in arm, uh, with them, uh, uh, to the, to the, the you know, through the committee process, the bill introduction process and, and that kind of thing. Absolutely. And that, that's, I mean, if you had told me, you know, 20 years ago that we would have deep, strong relationships and uh, partnerships with the Department of Corrections, with the, with the probation and parole, with prosecutors around the state, I would have said, how in the heck that is that going to work? I would not have believed it. But I think, and, and that, again, maybe this is back to that optimistic piece that we're in there, that we also are very surgical about what we're trying to do. We're not in there saying, gosh, the, the, you know, the world's going, you know, to hell in a handbasket, and we, you know, throw. I mean, we're saying, listen, let's try to solve some of these problems, and we come up based on our experience working with clients, based on our experience in court, we come up with very practical solutions that we can, and work them out among the powers that be. So, uh, and I, and I should say too, I, at my heart, and I think at the heart of our organization, and honestly, many people in in the South, I always say, we're very pragmatic. I mean, I want to see change happen. I don't want to make a statement. I want to make a difference. You know, I want to, I want to see people. I want to see the, the needle move. And I think that's also going back to your question, Robin, I think a lot of in the world of, you know, mass incarceration, there's a lot of people just making statements. And I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm not against that, but I'm much more about making a difference. So, so as you noted, we do have a lot of lawyers and judges, I hope, that listen to our podcast. Everyone, everyone we hope tunes in, regardless of their uh, occupation. But uh, I, I've had situations come up. I had a guy who uh, came to my office. Uh, who had been told uh, he was going to have to move because he was on a sex offender registry, no real reason for him to be on one. He had moved here from another state. 
uh, you know, kind of thing. And I, I was willing to help him. He didn't have any money. I was not, uh, I, I, I was doing it pro bono. Uh, but I got to looking around because that's just not something I do, you know, all the time. Uh, and you had, you mentioned a lot of your work is in Fulton and DeKalb in the metro Atlanta area. So for lawyers that may be out there and have folks like that come into their office, and uh, Robin knows this about me. I'll go to court on just about anything if you'll give me the paperwork or whatever to do that. Is that something you could help provide to lawyers that were trying to help help people with things like that in uh, other more rural areas of the state that maybe you all don't serve? So, so um, the answer I think is is mostly yes. Um, and again, because of these different spheres we work on, there's the criminal defense side, there's the barriers to entry writ large, whether they're probation or driver's license issues. Or criminal records, um, we do that work kind of all over uh, the state. Okay, and, great. And I and I should say a couple of things. You know, I mean, we're doing stuff all over the state as we speak. In fact, we, we have these expungement summits. We work with local jurisdictions. Um, in fact, we're doing one next week with Augusta. Uh, we've done we have stuff in Glen County. We're doing in Albany. Uh, we've opened up our first expungement desk with the with, with Cobb County and the prosecutors there. Um, we're talking about four or five of their jurisdictions. I've got some grant money to move that work forward as well. Um, so, and we do a lot of training of lawyers. So we've, uh, uh, this last fiscal year, I'm pretty sure I know this number right. We've uh, had over 170, I think, volunteer lawyers who've taken on cases, mostly criminal records, some of them like probation issues and, and some of them all over the state. We've had lawyers take on appellate issues when we lost, they asked a judge to do something. These are smaller lists, nothing major, not criminal defense per se. Um, and uh, in middle Georgia, we had this interesting fight that we won an appeals court all through volunteer lawyers uh, over the last year. So, so yeah, we use a lot. We First of all, we show up either directly or through our volunteer lawyers all over the state on these on the non-criminal defense side of things. And we do publish a lot of material. Uh, we actually publish our own manual on criminal records. We're in our fourth edition. I'm sorry, fifth edition coming up. We're working on it now. Um, we more and more are trying to put out information sort of self-help we're trying to work we, you know you mentioned justice melton earlier he's an old friend of mine more ways than one and he uh, while he was on the bench was pushing really hard around these uh self-help uh, you know law library self-help sort of uh, mechanisms which we know about have, there are in a few jurisdictions albany has been trying to do one pretty aggressively uh so we're trying to work with some of the law libraries to make sure that if somebody walks in the courthouse and they say how do i do something that it's from a pro se standpoint, it's there, but also from if lawyers are looking for information, they know it's there as well. So I don't know if that is that responsive. I don't know. The, yeah, I think it is. I mean, I I, I guess the, the you know one of the things that that I see a lot, and uh, I, you know, always uh, you know, Robin's heard me say this before. I think the only reason I ever got elected as state bar president was that uh, all I, I, I'm from Cartersville, and all the lawyers in Atlanta think I'm an Atlanta lawyer, and all the lawyers outside Atlanta think I'm a I'm a rural lawyer. And I answer to both, both, but uh, you do have a lot of lawyers in rural jurisdictions who are happy to go to court about stuff. They're happy to do pro bono work, uh, but a lot of times they just don't have the, they, they don't have the paperwork or the backup, or they don't have somebody in their office to go research what, you know, as you know, because you put out a manual about it, uh, is a pretty complex, uh, you know, area of the law and to drop everything else and be able to go do it. So it sounds like uh, you all are willing to work both in partnership or in, you know, support of in, in all areas of the state. And I, I didn't mean to uh, unfairly restrict uh, all of your activities to what you do, your, your criminal defense 
uh, work in there. I, I do want to ask you one other question, though, while we're talking about lawyers and providing uh, you know, legal services. I get asked uh, all the time about, uh, you know, people that want to go to law school. And, uh, and you know, Robin has, has a daughter who's uh, about to finish uh, Georgia Law School here. And, you know, one of the things I tell them is, you know, try to get the cheapest ABA accredited ed education you can so that you don't have a lot of debt and you can go do what you want to do. You're not locked into a particular job, but uh, there are a lot of high priced uh, law schools out there uh, in the ABA House of Delegates where I serve. There's been a lot of discussion about whether we really need a third year of law school, uh, you know, sometimes. But uh, how does that affect you? Do, do, are you seeing uh, a dearth of legal talent or people that would come work with you would rather be doing your kind of work than, uh, th than other types work, but they're just really not able to do that because they've got student loan debts? Well, that's a, well, that's a, that's, that's a good question. And there's a lot of issues rolled into that. Um, um, you know, as somebody who grew up really poor and I always say, I'm, I know this is an audio broadcast, but I'm holding up my pen. I say, I hold up my pen and say, this is what got me through law school. I mean, I had the ability to sign loan documents. I mean, I, you know, I, I was pretty much on my own from 18. And so uh, I was, I was very fortunate in, in many ways, but so I appreciate that the, you know, what I always tell people is that a generation before mine, there weren't those loans available. So if you didn't have resources, there wasn't a way even for you to go to law school or to finish law school or grad school. And then before that, before the GI bill and the changes after the second world war to go to college. So there's been a lot of changes in our culture and some of them come with a loan attached to it and the ability to get there, but you have to sign and pay it back. Uh, I think this affects people like grew up sort of like me and certainly folk of color coming from, uh, you know, non-privileged backgrounds. And I've talked to so many kids, for instance, over the years who meet me at fairs or say, listen, you know, I would love to come and do what you do. And especially I will say, you know, young law students of color, first generation college, first generation graduate school. And they say, but, you know, my family is counting on me. I mean, they are looking at me and they're not just looking at me to say, let me point to Johnny, our lawyer in the family. They're saying, I need to start paying some you know, bills for the family. I have, a, I have an expectation, multiple levels that I've got to go meet. And, and some of it's psychic. I mean, I, I certainly can appreciate it. Some of it's real. And so I think, I, I think that's a very real issue, especially when you come without resources, that, that uh, you, there's an expectation uh, that you need to go make a good bit of money to be and appear successful. And for all the real and not so real reasons. So um, I guess just real. And, and what ends up happening, and I've seen this too, and especially when our salaries at our organization were a lot lower than they are now, when we relied on the graciousness of others, on the generosity of others, as uh, you know, <laughs> um, Tennessee Williams would say, um, uh, to come work here. You know, just suffer it, suck it up. You just got to do it. Sorry, I know we can't pay much. Yeah, I know you got you know, sorry. And we lost a lot of good people because we couldn't do that because we were. So I, I don't think I think that's a really tough place for doing good work, but um, to be limited to. And what ends up happening and who fills that void? Folks who have resources, folks who were able to pay to go to law school, folks who. Um, and so this is an issue we talk a lot about when we recruit. We talk about staff. I mean, it's 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 a real issue. Um, it's a generational issue. It's a racial issue. It's a justice issue. Um, so having said, I mean, to me, that's one of the, the bigger frame I think about. Um, 
you know, the other thing I was going to add to this is that what's changed also in the last couple of years, really, uh, you know, a lot in the last two years since the, you know, the Floyd, George Floyd's murder and uh, what's the, the, the reckoning that seems to be going on in many ways in this country, is that there's a lot more money flowing into nonprofits doing work that's justice related, and particularly in states like Georgia. So uh, there's a lot more job opportunities than there ever were even a handful of years ago and more paths to get there. Uh, and more funders, national funders, uh, just putting money on the table saying, you know, to organizations like ours. Now, now we haven't had, I mean, it's, uh, so that's the other shift going on is that uh, it used to be there were, there were fewer jobs. There still are fewer jobs compared to the private sector, no doubt. Um, but Lester, this is such a great question. I don't want to linger too much, but I, I don't know. There's so many aspects to it. Uh, I would just throw in one more aspect to this that I think, as, as since you're on in the private bar, most folks listen to the private bar. You know, my first job out of college and my first job out of law school was working in the private sector. And I always say that the private sector it was much more interested in skills than your commitment. They, show me your skills to do this job. You know, and like I said, I work for Procter and Gamble selling toothpaste. They they grilled me and you know test after test before I got the job of whether I had certain skills. And at the end of one of these, uh, these, these tests, I, I, I asked the guy, after this is like a third interview on campus, and I said, uh, and he said, yeah, yeah, good. I said, well, listen, did you look at this and see what my answers were? He said, yeah, no, you answered, these are good answers. And I said, well, did you see the substance of the answer? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you see, every answer I gave you, I moved the ball around something that was, you know, social justice related. I ran the service group on college campus. I started groups on racial reconciliation. I was involved in faith groups. Every answer I gave you had to do with some form of, you know, public good, you know, making the world better. He's like, yeah, yeah. So I said, are you concerned about that? He said, no, we just want to see you have the skill. And the exact thing is flipped when you go to the nonprofit sector. I mean, especially for lawyers, they almost assume you have the skill. I want, they want to see your commitment. They want to see that you care about someone, something bigger than yourself, that you've shown up in community. And, and that is the thing that nobody ever teaches. I had a lawyer working with us. We were quickly had to give a bunch of resumes to interview students one time. And it was like, it was a deadline. We were, it was a trial going on. We we're all rushing around. It was an evening. And I said, would you just grab the stack and say who we're going to interview? And I said, I'll grab a few too. And about halfway through, I, I saw her just moving stocks around. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And she was like, right, no job before undergrad, you know, undergrad at the law school. I said, well, wait, 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 how, how are you deciding? I mean, I, we didn't talk about a criteria. <laughs> and she said, oh, no, it's really easy. She said, I just look, anybody that's done any kind of service work that's more than a semester, they're in the yes pop. Summer here, semester there. If you've done nothing, you've just been a regular person, nothing wrong with you, but you've shown no commitment, you go in the no pop. And you've done a little bit, you go in the maybe pop. And I think what I tell you that story because I think she intuitively picked up on what most nonprofits and nonprofit legal groups think, how they think, how nonprofits think. We want to see commitment when the private sector wants to see skill. So the beauty in the law field, I think, is that we can almost kind of expect skill. You know, it's the commitment that's harder to find. I have no idea if that's responsive, Lester, but that's oh, it. I think it is. It's it's uh, it's it's fascinating. I think I've thrown you more curveballs than uh, I normally do, and you've 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 landed every one of them in the in the bleachers there. Have, Doug, have you seen more pro bono uh, work for Georgia Justice Project? Because you know, thirty years ago, I've practiced thirty three years. Thirty three years pro bono. Well, I worked for two defense firms. They wouldn't even let you do pro bono. Um, but but then as we evolved, 
Um, some big firms even have what they call pro bono partners. And that that lawyer's job is to do nothing but get pro bono work and place their lawyers in pro bono uh, spots. So is that an improvement for you? Oh, absolutely. It, it's amazing. Uh, you know, I, you know, I am a lawyer, a trial lawyer. So I always, everything's a story to me, but I just, one summer, it's probably 15, 20 years ago, I had a, you know, we have a lot of interns and maybe an undergrad intern. And I said, listen, I'm, will you, here's a list of the 20 biggest law firms in the city. Uh, will you call all of them and find mm-hmm. out who's running their pro bono operations? Mm-hmm. Who is the person, anything else you can find, just give me a number and a name. And so we know who to call when we have a question. Now, it's just about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And after about two weeks, the person came back and said, uh, Doug, I, I did what you asked. I called them all. I called a couple of times and, and I couldn't get any answers. Uh, I said, what do you mean? Is it they wouldn't tell me. <laughs> you know? and, I, and I remember thinking. Probably because they didn't have one. Well, some didn't, but it was so new. When I, to your point, Robin, what I saw happen within a handful of years, that shift has it's been dramatic. The law firms now, sometimes no matter how big you are, or certainly the bigger ones, they don't make it. Uh, opaque like was what was then if at all it's absolutely you can go on their website and say who is the pro bono in charge who's the partner in charge of pro bono yeah and many of the bigger firms have one or two or three people focusing on it yeah so there has been such a shift in consciousness in this in the, in the georgia area i believe um and a lot of that has come my corporate lawyer friends and my board will say from the companies uh they, the companies the legal in-house counsel are saying what are you doing in the community to, to the law firms they're hiring uh and so i think it's um, I mean, some of them have often had this, but it's been a fascinating. And so for us, as I mentioned, we rely, I think the number in our 990s, which are getting filled out as we speak for the last fiscal year that ended a few months ago, I think we're going to have almost half a million dollars of donated services. Oh, that's awesome. It's it's a huge part of our work. And we couldn't do, and we, uh, and we get more and more requests for folks who want to work with us. Uh, and we keep ramping up our volunteer training. We have one, we have another training happening uh, next Friday or Thursday, I think. Very nice. Doug, um, we've talked a lot about the, the mission. You've, you've done it very eloquently. I'm curious about you personally. Do you have a, you know, looking back over your career and, and all you've done with the Georgia Justice Project, do you have a, a favorite case that, that you want to tell the listeners about or, or favorite moment or worst moment or you're a storyteller. So tell us a good story. Well, I, I, everybody, every trial lawyer has got the worst moment, and uh, I'll say, I have one of those. And I have a couple of favorites, and they usually are in the criminal defense side, usually a homicide case. And it, of course, it usually involves winning uh, of some kind. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, I probably have a hard time not talking about my longest trial, which is two months in a homicide case. And my client was 15. Again, this was, I remember the trial was 95, and he was just in the office about two weeks ago, given that long term arc. Um, and, you know, we did win the case, but what was really stark to me, you know, we, we worked, I mean, the nice part of the way we work and we're not constrained, we can take as many cases as we want to take and as we can handle. So we really get deep on the cases. We haven't, we hire investigators, we do a lot of our own investigation. And this one murder case, you know, uh, kid was 15, there were 10 kids involved. One was an adult by 17, most of them are all young. It was a terrible homicide that happened. It was, it was terrible, but, um, but the police just went and rounded folks up and said, okay, we're charging. And uh, the first DA on the case, uh, I, you know, I, I kind of like to pride ourselves on pounding the case. And I go out, I'm out talking to people. I bring back, I tell them, I said, listen, we think you got the wrong guy. He said, well, Doug, you bring me back the names of people and their statements, and I'll look at it. And if it's true, I'll dismiss. And we've gotten, we get a lot of dismissals, by the way, um, and even on homicide cases. 
And so I went out, we did our work, we came back, and I remember it was the old DA's office, I, I, it was, I got to his door, and it was like a Friday afternoon, and he wasn't there, and I slid all this paperwork underneath the door. And I was waiting to hear back. I was like, you know, and he's a great, great guy. He was, I mean, he was a hardcore prosecutor, but he was, he was fair. And he's, and I knew he was true to his word. If I, if I gave him the information, if I gave him the facts, he would say, you're right. We got the wrong guy. We'll dismiss it. So I didn't hear back for about two or three weeks or two or three days. And then maybe a week. And then another week goes by. And I'm like, I call him and say, dude, what, what's going on? He's all oh, well, the case that it's, somebody else has the case. I said, oh man. So who's got, it? okay. This other guy. I go to talk to him. I said, well, did you give him the packet? He said, oh, yeah, I gave it to him. I said, I went to talk to him. I said, did you get, did you read the packet? He said, hi, brother. I said, well, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to try your, I'm going to try your client. I'm like, wait a second. I, I just gave you all this information that shows that he didn't do it. And you're going to try it. He's like, yeah, I am. And I said, why? He said, because just like you, I've been out in the neighborhood and I've been talking to people. And I, your client, like he's 16, maybe he's 15, 16 or 15. He said, he has a reputation. It's a bad reputation. He, he's not, many people think he's a bully. I'm like, okay, this is a murder case. What, what has that got to do with anything? He said, he said, cause I'm not, I'll sleep at night. Basically what he said, he said, I, I, I am okay with prosecuting him and convicting him because if he didn't do this one, he'll do another one. And I was, I mean, one of those things you're like, you're talking about firing up, you know, a lawyer to go fight like crazy. You're like, you are kidding me. This guy's paid by the state, paid by my tax dollars to do justice. And he says, I think this, your kid's a bad kid, so I'm going to spend the rest of his life in prison, even though the evidence shows he didn't do it. Two-month murder trial, and I have so many stories from the trials, any, any trial would. It was, it was a knockdown, drag out, but only one person got convicted of a misdemeanor. I mean, and, and it, what it just told me, I mean, it was such a powerful, I mean, I learned lots of lessons in that trial, but it was a sad reminder of how much power Mm -hmm. um, prosecutors have and how, if you don't use it wisely. I mean, the irony is I had the first prosecutor used his power incredibly wisely. Mm -hmm. And the second guy in the same office chose to abuse his power and wasted tons of time and money and effort. So that I always think about that. Winning that case was, was great. By the way, two jurors uh, got married. They met and got married. Invite me to the wedding as they should, because uh, I, you know, um, that's one quick, just, quick romance from yeah, two months. <laughs> yeah. what, what was going on in that jury room? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's that's one of the things too. talking about that prosecutor. I, I think I have the converse attitude about that because people ask me a, a lot. You know, well, you know, what what if they're really guilty and you get them off? You know, is, is always the question. And uh, I, I always say, you know, people that really are guilty, they end up right back there. They just sort of feel empowered. You know, I think O.J. Simpson is the poster child, you know, for that, that, uh, you, you know, yeah, you, you, you got a break here. You know, th then he goes and uh, th then he goes and, you know, sticks up the folks who's got his memorabilia or whatever, yeah. you know, and ends up in prison anyway. Uh, so, but that's a horrible attitude for a prosecutor to, to, to have. It, is, it was, and I was still young enough that it shocked the heck out of me, you know, and just, uh, just like if you've watched, um, you know, Michael Jordan on the last dance and how he'd use all these things to get fired up for a basketball game, you know, it's like every lawyer needs to get fired up about every now and then. like that fired me up. I'm like, well, let's go. And we, we took it to town. Um, so I, you know, in your point, I, the other thing, we've had a lot of clients who go to prison and this is some of you said just now unless you maybe think about this and we, we've lost cases and we take pleas and about five percent five to nine percent of our clients a year it varies but it's as low as four or three high as seven or eight 
a year, go get, get jail time for the case that we've had with them. So we, we have an 80% success rate in our criminal defense practice. That's incredible. About, yeah, it's, it is incredible. And, but even when folks go to prison, and I had so many clients uh, say, one of the first murder cases I worked on was a volunteer. He just got out of prison about two years ago. And uh, it was a tough case. We lost him, went to trial, lost him. We visited an amazing man. Uh, he's, he was 18 at the time, really 16 when he got arrested, 18 when he got convicted. Um, and he would say, like a lot of our clients would say, you know, prison, I needed prison. I, I mean, I was out there doing stupid stuff and I would be dead if it weren't for prison because I, I needed to just slow down and settle down. I mean, so prison can be this place for people to regroup. I mean, I always say, you know, Malcolm X, I don't know if you read the autobiography of Malcolm X, which is powerful, but he talks about prison was the thing that saved him uh, because when he was in prison in Massachusetts, uh, because he because he was out there running and gunning, as they say on the street and, and mixing it up and some you know stuff. And so. I mean, I'm not saying everybody should go to prison, but sometimes prison is that space where somebody can can you know pull back, reassess, especially if they're in a they're in a bad place. If they're you know running with a, a, a gang, uh, doing some crimes, you know somebody's likely to get hurt or killed, and it's only going to get worse. So it, it can be a pause. That's I, I've had people ask me, don't don't you want to be a judge? And I one of my responses to that is no. There's some people who need to be sent to prison, but that doesn't mean I need to be the one sending them uh, <laughs> there, you know, and, and same for dividing up, uh, dividing up pots and pots and pans in divorce cases, you know, they, that needs happening, but uh, not, not doesn't need to be me to do it. That's right. Thank you. Doug, we've heard a lot about your uh, Christian faith and how it was a calling for you to go to law school originally 30 something years ago. And what you do is your call. Um, is there a personal tenant or a religious uh, spiritual tenant that informs the way you practice? Well, I, I would say I'm, I'm certainly here out of my faith, and I think I'm very much in, I am very much informed by my faith and my you know uh, as a Christian and my and sort of spiritual principles. Uh, but I would say too, we have people on our staff who are not religious at all, agnostic. We have multiple faith folk here have had on our board all you know. So we've never, as an organization, um, sort of pushed any religious, you know, uh, either internally or externally. We don't uh, push our clients to sort of do anything. But but for many of us, this is an expression of our faith. And that was how we got founded. Our founder was, it was his way of integrating his his faith as a Christian and his practice as a lawyer. That's the way he talked about it. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm very informed by my faith. And I think, uh, I, I think the biggest thing I think I'm informed by is that, um, well, it's just the fact that I'm here. <laughs> I mean, I did. This is not what I expected in my life. I mean, I, I spent, you know, my I grew up. My dad was an alcoholic. He died of alcoholism. He got out of uh, college. He was a World War II vet. I mean, um, he actually went to law school for a couple, like a year. Didn't finish. Uh, only person in his family to go to college. First generation American. Um, you know, I, I grew up. I could talk about that. I grew up pretty rough in a lot of ways, but but very blessed too. But my point is, when you grow up that way, a lot of us, just like those those young lawyers I was talking about. You work your butt off to escape poverty. You're trying to get out. You're trying to get somewhere. You don't know exactly where it is, but it's not where you are. And that's what motivated me in many ways. And so, you know, law, um, though God was shaping me in ways I didn't understand at the time, but law was that one of those ways out. Doing well in school was one of those ways out. You know, athletics was one of those ways out. So I expected to be out. And so for me, the, the very clear call I got, I felt uh, one afternoon, one evening on a, October uh, was to turn around and to go back to the places I was running from and to face the sort of the realities I was trying to get away from. 
And that's not a very comfortable thing. Like, I'm trying to get away. I mean, I was really clearly trying to get away. And I thought God saying, no, you need to go back. And I'm like, well, wait, wait, this is how long I'm going to be back. <laughs> and for many, many years here, I would say, I, I'd look up and ask, are we through yet? Am I, am, I, am I done yet? Like, is this what you wanted? Like, I mean, where is the, where is the line here? So for me, just being here was, was in some ways, it makes so much sense, but in some ways it's so counterintuitive to that survivor in me that's trying to be, I don't want to say successful, just comfortable to not suffer. Um, so there's an irony for me even showing up here, being so close to suffering uh, and the suffering that I was really trying to escape. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not nowhere near what I was like growing up. I didn't imagine myself being you know, uh, in some big law firm, I, I wasn't trying to make a zillion dollars. I just did not want to be where I was. So, so coming back to this place and working with people who are a lot like, you know, sometimes like my dad and like the addicts I grew up with and was surrounded by um, was, was just not my idea of success and why I worked so hard to get into places like Davidson and w and um, it, it was just not, I mean, you work hard to, to get out. You don't work hard to come back. And that's counterintuitive and that, but that's the nature of spiritual things. I mean, you know, it's counter countercultural. That's only, sorry, Robin, that's, I only answered part of your question, I think, but. Uh, it, it makes sense. It's very interesting. You've obviously had an um, incredible career thus far. You're still going and uh, have changed so many people's lives. It's uh, you, I just, I, I applaud you and um, thank you for everything you've done. Uh, it's an amazing story to me. Um, Doug, we, we ask every guest at the end of our podcast, what is your definition of justice or your notion of justice? So this might get back to the part of the question that Lester asked me that I didn't finish and I didn't answer about grace. He asked about grace and people. Um, the best definition of justice, I know I should also say, I'm where I'm sitting here in the office, I'm directly behind Dr. King's grave. And we are on the same block as Ebenezer, the historic Ebenezer Church. I can look out my window and see the family, the, the, the King Center. Um, and actually Dr. King's grave lines up with our building. We're an old gas station garage. It's kind of a dome shape. We, we own it, remodeled it 20 years ago. And so you, when you stand at Dr. King's grave, you see, you, you see our, the arch of our building almost. And I always tell people that we're lined up for justice, you know, physically and other ways. But the best definition of justice I know is Dr. King gave a great one. And, and that is, is that justice is love correcting that which revolts against love. That always, it just shakes me. And it, it really gets down to sort of this answer, this thing you were talking about, Lester, is that, um, is that um, the idea of justice, I think a lot of people, even in, in Christians or folks of faith, look at the Old Testament and they think justice and mercy are two different things that they're separated somehow. And I'm no biblical scholar, but my little bit of reading says that, that no, these things are integrally connected. You can't separate the idea of love from justice or mercy from justice. The idea that, that they go together, but what is the most just is to use a spiritual principle in redeeming a situation, a person, a society, a law with love that is by definition sacrificial, uh, non-judging, uh, and filled with grace. So, yeah, I'd like to think that what we're doing here every day is justice, and it is an act of grace, because it's, a, it's about accepting people, no matter what they've done. It's about seeing the best in them, maybe in their future. But it's also about really acknowledging 
and affirming the humanity of all of us together, not just by me being a good lawyer or by us helping somebody on their path, but it's by that engagement together that I believe we're fulfilling justice because we are expressing love and receiving love in the sense of which correcting something that, that is wrong. I mean, justice is about correction, but the, the method to get to justice is through a, a spiritual principle, Dr. King would say, of love. Great answer. Absolutely a great answer. Wonderful. Absolutely beautiful. Well, Doug, thank you so much. We've we've gone a little long, but it was just so interesting. I I, I think I, we could do part two with you one day. Um, but let me remind our listeners, we've been talking with Doug Amar, the executive director of the Georgia Justice Project. You may learn more about the Georgia Justice Project at their website, uh, GIP.org. And you can also follow G, I'm sorry, that's GJP.org, GJP, Georgia Justice Project. And you can also follow GJP on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you so much, Doug. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's been an honor. What we typically do at this time, Robin, is uh, we each have uh, an item from the news, from, usually from the recent news that's about the law or trials or uh, uh, lawyering, and, uh, and we talk about those. And the one I want to talk about today uh, is in yesterday's Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, it's written by Bill Rankin, who is covering the uh, Ahmaud Arbery, Arbery uh, case down in Brunswick. You may uh, remember that uh, Arbery was a 25-year-old unarmed black man that they saw uh, running through a neighborhood in Satilla, named Satilla Shores down in Brunswick. Uh, the, the three defendants confronted him. He ended up being shot and killed, and uh, all three have been charged with murder, and they are uh, about to go on trial down there. And so this article today, though, I think I, I, I kind of want to tell you why I think it's important. Uh, and that is that it's what lawyers do all the time. It's this, uh, you know, people who serve on jury duty uh, and, and serve on the actual jury for a case don't see everything. You know, they only see parts of it. And so uh, what this article is about, it's entitled Defense, as in the defense is saying this jury should know that Arbery was on probation when he died. And it turns out that Arbery was on probation uh, for a couple of events uh, that, that, that went back uh, several years, uh, carrying a handgun on school property and obstruction in 2013 and attempting to shoplift a television from Walmart in 2017. Uh, so uh, the defense obviously wants to put that out there uh, in order to uh, establish that Arbery uh, may have been a bad actor and that may have promoted uh, uh, some of the conduct, which I think they're primarily claiming self-defense. This is not, as criminal defense lawyers call it, a whodunit, it's a whydunit uh, type case. And the prosecution's response to this uh, has been that uh, the evidence was not known to the people who uh, who killed Arbery or who participated in, in, in the killing of Arbery. 
And so, you know, obviously this is very similar to when, you know, whether you know somebody has a gun or doesn't have a gun, when you're acting in self-defense, you have to perceive that there's some sort of threat. And so what the prosecution's saying is the defense, you know, the, the, the defense, the, the defendants in this case wouldn't have known uh, that they didn't know he was on probation. So there was, that didn't figure into their calculus of what they ought to do, uh, which was uh, namely, one of the guys chased him down with a truck while another confronted him with a shotgun, none of whom these people were law enforcement. Um, I, I, these are the kind of things that go on all the time. And, uh, you know, juries don't get every fact. And uh, I, I saw also another article that I almost used where in the uh, Boston Marathon bombing case, which was a death penalty case, in the penalty phrase, uh, the defendant was not uh, able to introduce evidence that his older brother uh, had killed several people a few years before. And that case was argued in front of the Georgia Supreme Court. And so these are all pretty complex questions of relevancy. And I think it's important for our audience because this is what the law is and this is how it's different from politics or sports. You know, in uh, uh, sports, you cheer for your team, even if your team isn't the best team. Uh, in politics, you you root for your candidate, uh, you know, sort of win or lose. Uh, but these have some questions about trying to give these folks a fair trial, and also uh, to to you know hopefully achieve some justice in the thing. So I, I thought that was that was worthy of mention today. Absolutely, and I've always thought about our oath that we administer to witnesses in trial. Uh, you raise your hand and the oath is, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. Um, but it really should be, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth as permitted by the rules of evidence and the rulings of the court? So help you, God, uh, because the jury doesn't get to hear everything. They get to hear what's permitted under the, the evidentiary rules and pursuant to the judge's rulings. Um, and let me ask you, Lester, has the judge ruled on that probation issue? I don't think it's been ruled on yet. Okay. I, wasn't, I think this was this article posted up about 20 hours before our podcast here. So I don't think I'm, um, I'm sure it's under advisement. It's a, it's an interesting legal question. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, there are all kinds of things implemented, implicated in this. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot, you know, it's been a huge uh, call for racial justice there, but this is a, this is really a technical evidentiary trial issue. And I think, uh, you know, in the case that I that was argued in front of the Supreme Court about the Boston Marathon bomber, uh, I think it was Justice Kagan and uh, one of the other justices were talking about it and asking questions about it. And, you know, an underlying question with this is, can't you trust judge, juries with yeah. information? You know, even if it's irrelevant, there is a relevance right. objection at trial, but even if it's irrelevant information, uh, can't you trust juries with it and allow them to yeah. uh, use it for whatever purpose it's worth? Well, I, I actually blogged about that yesterday because I heard I listened to the Supreme Court argument. And what caught my ear was sort of Justice Sotomayor asked. Uh, I couldn't believe it. She said, isn't that a jury question? Which you never hear a United States Supreme Court justice ask that. But when I hear that, I'm like, yeah, of course, it is a jury question. It should always be a jury question. Um, and and so I blogged about that because I was struck that a United States Supreme Court justice would ask what my default 
mode is, yeah, it's always a jury question. The jury should have. Juries make those kind of decisions every day in every courtroom in America. Uh, They should be allowed to have the information and they decide. Don't keep it from them. Let them have it. You know, you don't. When I started practicing law, there there was a, there there was an objection ruling that I heard judges all over the state make when I tried cases. And I think now you've got a, in some ways we've got newer, probably more technocratic judges who uh, who I think oftentimes try to sort of find a way to keep a jury from hearing something. But uh, the the old time ruling uh, from country judges was. I'll let it in for what it's worth, <laughs> right. which, uh, which said it's probably not very relevant. It's a sort of almost uh, sustained objection, but I'll let, <laughs> I'll let it in for whatever it's worth. Yeah, well, I'll be uh, I, I know a lot of our listeners will, too, but I'll be following the Ahmad Arbery. The McMichaels trial starts with jury selection on Monday, and I, I am uh, following it pretty closely. So um, looking forward to that will be very interesting. Um, my my legal news item uh, is kind of fun and interesting, and it's a civil case, a case in federal court in Topeka, Kansas, and it's over insurance coverage on a car. And what the claimants are asking to have provided coverage for is that um, two people had sex in a car and one person gave the other person a sexually transmitted disease during the sex act. And they now want that covered under the automobile insurance, uh, the the getting of the sexually transmitted disease. And it turns out that Geico insures this car and has the underlying liability coverage. And then, interestingly, there's a million dollar policy over that that will only kick in if the automobile policy applies. And so the person who received the sexually transmitted disease has argued it should be covered uh, because it was a tort that occurred within the vehicle. Uh, as you can imagine, Geico doesn't appreciate that. They don't see the sense of humor in that and uh, filed a declaratory judgment action in federal court uh, saying that they shouldn't have to <laughs> cover the giving of a sexually transmitted disease in uh, while having sex in a car, that that is outside the bounds of coverage. So very, very interesting. But, um, but you can be assured that if uh, if there were a very technical reading of that, you know, like any torque committed in a vehicle uh, that uh, uh, would relieve Geico of uh, its responsibilities under the policy, they would be uh, they would be happy to take a technical reading of that instead of the general reading. And you have to add into that, too, that the insurance policies are drafted by the insurer. So if they wanted to exclude sexually transmitted diseases, they could have certainly put a <laughs> put an exclusion in there for that. Uh, my, my question would be, were they having sex with the car moving? Because some of these policies are written that if it's moving, if it's a, a vehicle in motion, because in my Tex McIver case, same sort of thing, uh, Chubb, filed a declaratory judgment action where I had sued for wrong Tex McIver for wrongful death of his wife, uh, where he shot her in the backseat through the backseat of the car, shot her and killed her. But the car was moving. And I argued that that Chubb had they had the same thing, a hundred thousand dollar liability policy. And then they actually had a ten million dollar plup personal liability umbrella policy. And it all hinged on 
was the car moving? They they so Chubb argued, oh no, they were at a stop sign or they were at a stoplight. <laughs> I said, no, I think they were moving. Well, you know, uh, people, people, uh, people forget. And I, I spent all day yesterday in two depositions that involve a uh uh, an insurance coverage case, you know, it's a, it's a property damage case, but these insurance policies are like the game of shoots and ladders. You know, you find, you, you know, you're making progress toward showing where the coverage is. And then there's some exception or whatever that drops back. And uh, it's one of those things that lawyers all the time, somebody comes with, comes and brings you some document like an insurance policy. Could you read this and tell me if it's okay? Well, you don't, you have no idea what circumstances you may right. be confronted with other and how, how it would play out in that. And so you're, that's a great uh, article, but the answer uh, there may be it's covered by the, by the four corners of the document uh, there yeah. And uh, uh, I don't have the policy, but it'd be interesting to read that policy. To But what a what a clever argument by a plaintiff's yes. attorney. Yes. <laughs> I give yes. them credit for just the, the creative creativity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great podcast today, Robin. Very Thank nice. I really enjoyed our. Yep. I really enjoyed our conversation with Doug Amar. Fantastic. All right. Anything well, else? I can't think of anything else. I'll, okay. I'll let you close it out there. All right, folks. Until next time, we'll see you in see court. You in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, seeyouincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to see you in court podcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.